Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Tara Talk. Hi, everyone. This is Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Today, we are going to tackle the topic of capital punishment. I, I guess I would start out by saying we're not taking a stance one way or the other on capital punishment. We just thought it's an interesting um, psychological topic in our, in our world today and for the last many decades. And I think today... Uh, we're going to get into the origins of it and some statistics and some other things. Yeah, and uh, I have um, known colleagues of mine who actually do, because in the state of California, the death penalty is still legal. However, we'll get into some of the the issue, not the issues, but some of the changes um, that came up over this past year. But there are uh, forensic psychologists who actually do evaluations for death penalty um, sentencing. Okay. So there, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of industry around it. I hate to sound like no, that that's like a specialty. It's a specialty for okay. people who just like um, some of us do incompetency to stand trial. Like before, someone could even go to a, a hearing like that where they could get the death penalty. They first have to be found competent to stand trial. So when you're doing evaluations for court work. In criminal cases, there's um, a trajectory of first, uh, there's the pre-adjudication evaluations, that, which are around whether or not someone's even competent enough to stand trial. Mm-hmm. And then all the way through insanity, <clears throat> um, moral responsibility, things like that. And then all the way through um, death penalty. So it's pretty intense. It's intense work. So, so let's help me understand and our audience understand. So if I'm a psychologist and that's, this is like the, for lack of a better word, the niche that I want to go into, I am evaluating, assessing, and sitting with someone who has already been sent or has already been uh, convicted and is on death row and has yet to be sentenced. Um, to be honest with you, I'm going to look at the break. Okay. And I'll get back to you on that okay. because I, I want to say that it, the death penalty evaluations are not post-adjudicative. Okay. I think they may actually be going on during the whole process because a lot of our evaluations are around culpability and whether somebody has the capacity to understand right from wrong and things like that. So I'll get a little bit, I'll take yeah, a look great. on the break. I don't do them, but I've known professors of mine who do them yeah. or have done them. So okay. uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. So capital punishment is, we're going to use these interchangeably today, but it's also known as the death penalty. And it's a government sanctioned practice where someone could be put, put to death by the state as a punishment for a crime. So the sentence ordering that someone be punished in such a manner as referred to as the death sentence, where the act of carrying out such a sentence is known as an execution. So someone is given the death penalty as their sentence, and then once that is actually carried out, the day that they are put to death is called the execution. And really, when we think about capital punishment, this goes back to the beginning of time when we're really looking at what morality is. So principles concerning the distinction between right or wrong or good and bad behavior. So over time, as we've evolved as, as society, we clearly have different, um, people have different opinions around morality and what is right and what is wrong. But I think 
in the judicial system, it's still um, if you are harming someone or killing somebody, then that I don't think there's ever going to be a time where people really look at that and go, eh, you know, I don't know if that was wrong, unless in case it's a um, self-defense or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. So if we go back to Old Testament times, the death penalty was used as punishment for murder. So Genesis 9, 6 specifically, this is where the Old Testament is, was around the Ten Commandments and eye for an eye was a big thing. If you did something, then you were going to get that back. So death was also the punishment for a number of other offenses. So this is this is when I talk about the evolution of society and becoming just more civilized. People would get executed for eating uh, leavened bread during uh, the feast of the un- unleavened bread, being a stubborn child. I mean, that was like one of the the biggest things you could do is betray a parent, and you're being put to death for that. Um, picking uh, picking up sticks on the Sabbath day, insulting your parents, going to the tabernacle if you're not not a priest, <laughs> ignoring the verdict of a judge or priest. Mm-hmm. So if, can you imagine just thinking about that? Like if that, if, if the death penalty was still that easy with the way society is now, we'd all be dead. Oh yeah. Um, but today the death penalty is actually still used in 30 out of the 50 States, which is pretty high. That is, that's higher than I thought it would be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, at this point, I mean, I know, I don't know. There's some days I would probably say, I, I thought all of them, you know, I mean, you just, yeah. With our current climate, I, I can't, there are so many things that go on and, and it's what, what comes to mind when you're talking about the Bible and, and, you know, a long, long time ago and the way we punish. And I, it just strikes me that it wasn't a psychologically minded world. No. And how far we have come in the sense that, Things aren't black and white. Right. Things are gray. And all of these psychologically type assessments that we do within the forensic system. I was on my, uh, my student, one of my students has a podcast um, and it's around social justice and the mental health system. And she was asking, I was on it uh, last week and she was asking me about how I felt um, with regard to prison versus rehabilitation in this country. And I think we've built more awareness around it, but we have way too many prisons um, compared to rehabilitation work. And so clearly what I was explaining to her was if someone falls more in like uh, sociopathy, psychopathy, malignant narcissism, antisocial personality disorder, many of these people aren't going to benefit directly from rehabilitation. They may actually use those situations to manipulate and learn how to use empathy against people, things like that. But that's a very small percentage. I would say 85% of offenders can be rehabilitated if given the, the right resources. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's not, it's not black or white. And this is, I, you know, you, you know that I, um, have been working on a case, uh, in my practice and, the court system wants us to say yes or no, yes mm-hmm. or no, yes or no. Mm-hmm. And, and it depends on so many different, there's so much gray. The legal system has a really hard time wrapping their head around that. Yeah. I think the only way to go about that, and maybe this is what you do is if you say to them, you know, what point am I addressing? Because it's like, I can only give you my answer to whatever question you're asking when it's specific to this person in this circumstance, right. in this context, on this day, in this courtroom, and then right. you can't, and then you can give a definitive right. answer about what your expert opinion is. Right. 
But if you're going to just be like, so what do you think we should do about capital? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. so broad, you know, like yeah. the, the beer conversation, the conversation out mm-hmm. back at the beer party, you know, mm-hmm. it's just, I mean, so many people ask us those kinds of questions. And I always have to say, you know, I'm not sure how to answer you. That's so vague and so broad a question. And my work is based on individuals. Yeah. Yep. And that's usually what I say. And they go like, oh. Mm-hmm. We can, I mean, we can talk all about my opinion. Or if you get the angry attorney goes, but what I am asking you is, do you blah, blah. I mean, they love to get, they, they love putting on a show. Well, it's dramatic. Yeah, yeah they love putting on a show. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but yeah, I've had attorneys call me around this case and they'll be asking me questions. And I'm like, do you want me to answer that as a forensic psychologist or as a clinical psychologist? Because it's really going to depend on what angle I'm at. I'm answering this. Well, from. and I think it's important. I think that's important context whenever anyone is answering a question from a professional standpoint, whether it's psychology or legal advice or anything. Mm-hmm. It's it's that idea of you know, when someone just plops themselves down in front of you and says, so what do you think I should do about my marriage? Or right. what do you think, what do you think I should How do about you my like, anxiety? Do you want me to answer that as a friend or as a psychologist? And, and I said to this attorney, that's exactly the conversation I had with her was, it's going to depend on what lens you want me to use. There you go. Right. So this is a huge controversial topic in this country. And I think that many people have a lot of feelings around it simply based on what you just said, Shannon, which is it is not an all or nothing thing. And crimes are individualized. Um, there's so much context that is involved in a case. And and if, if anybody out here listening has testified in court, cases are so incredibly um, intricate and there's so much going on. Even like one, you can be on one question for 30 minutes Mm-hmm. Uh, one piece of evidence, quote unquote evidence for 30 minutes. So the reason I bring that up is I think if you're an outsider, you just kind of go, well, clearly he did that and he's guilty. So blah, blah, blah. But if you've ever sat through a trial or had to testify in a trial, it is incredibly complex. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's why a lot of people with capital punishment is like, whoa, we need to be careful here because in the last 15 years, there's been a lot of research around um, wrongfully accused, as well as um, all the innocence projects. I testified on a murder trial two years ago for the California Innocence Project, and they ended up reversing her verdict, and she was innocent. Yeah, I think that's an important point. I mean, I watched this documentary, it's from 2005, and it's about the Innocence Project and about capital punishment. And it was it was very interesting, because it was about men who were exonerated from death row by DNA evidence. Mm -hmm. So it was right in that time where we were realizing that um, everything needed to be revisited. And the Innocence Project, uh, you know, in the 90s, I guess, really, you know, in the early 2000s really snapped into <laughs> into action because there were all of these people uh, writing to them saying, you know, I'm actually innocent and I've heard that there's DNA evidence now and, and they couldn't take all the cases, but they would take the, they would sort, they said they sorted the pile by who was on death row. Mm. So they would take all of the death row cases that they mm. would get first. And it was interesting because there was st- some statistics in that, 
in that film, and again, it was made in 2005, so they were looking at the research that had been done, you know, 15 years, um, the, for the last 15 years before 2005, so approximately 1990 to 2005, and they were saying that eyewitness misidentification was the single leading cause of being um, convicted when you're innocent. For sure. And then on top of that, that in rape cases, 88% of rape cases involved a mistaken identification. That is crazy. Yeah. And and we can I I mean that sounds just like amazing and but then you take a second and you think about the trauma and the PTSD and all the things that we've been talking about here over the last many months and what kind of um like I'm thinking of that series unbelievable that we saw and mm-hmm. and questioning someone when they're in uh that that fresh state mm-hmm. and asking them to identify. And then we already know identification is not, now we know eyewitness. Yeah. We didn't know that eyewitness was as bad as it is. Mm-hmm. Why we didn't know. I, I can't speak to, mm-hmm. but we now it's now commonly known that eyewitness is the least strong evidence you could have. If anyone wants to look at a case, the book is called picking cotton. And it's actually about an eyewitness um, case where this man was wrongfully accused of murder um, for eyewitness through eyewitness testimony, and he was in a lineup. The victim was a Caucasian female, and he an African American male. To make a very long story short, he was wrongfully accused. They are now friends, mm-hmm. and the woman wrote the book yeah. based on you know. Um, based on what she did to this man's life. And okay. it was, it's, um, we actually had to watch all the interviews when I was in my doctoral program. We had to watch the story and it's quite fascinating and really sad because, you know, there is the whole idea of if you are one race and you see another race that, and it's incredibly inappropriate, but people will say, well, they all look the same in this lineup. How do I? So, and there's, you can even, we're not going to get into this today, but you can look up the statistics around, um, just how facial features and things like that, if that is not your race, how easy it is for you to assume that black man is actually that black man. Yeah, right? and, and there's a story like that in this documentary, and it might be the same story, okay. but one of the men that they interview and talk to, there's five or six men in this <clears throat> documentary where they talk about their stories, and that is the trajectory of the story where there's a, a white woman who misidentified him, and mm-hmm. then they show the two pictures of the, him and then the the um, rapist that they actually eventually did catch, mm-hmm. and they show their pictures side by side. the same one. And they don't look... They because don't I, believe it was, I believe it was rape too. They don't look yeah. much alike, although they had, I will say they um, were both African-American and they had the same stature yeah. and the same general face shape, right. but their features were very different. very different. So maybe that's what you're kind of talking about in that the feature distinction mm-hmm. am- across races and mm-hmm. ethnicities is just, we're just not strong in that as people. Right. Yeah. Most exactly. people are not strong in that. So this is where one of the many reasons why, um, Capital punishment, there's a lot of controversy around it. The other thing that I wanted to talk about today was the idea that in some states, it's actually legal to consider someone under the age of 18 Mm -hmm. to be um, placed on death row for execution. So I wanted to, I know you work with kids and youth and teens, and to maybe have a little bit of a conversation around development and moral responsibility. So Lawrence Kohlberg, who's an American psychologist, um, he 
sort of worked alongside and used some of um, Piaget's work in cognitive reasoning, and he posited six stages of moral development in his 1958 doctoral thesis. So since that time, morality and moral development have Mm. become acceptable subjects of scientific research. So again, when we think about morality, we're thinking about being able to differentiate between right and wrong or whether something is bad or good. Mm -hmm. So I just want to mention that um, because this was so long ago, the research is biased due to the fact that it was only being done on males. And there's a lot of research that shows that women may have a different experience in the world Mm -hmm. and so they may react differently or they may have um their moral reasoning may develop at a different time or an earlier time right but what i wanted to focus on was stage five because typically if children are even in a position of being looked at for culpability it's going to be in like preteen and teenage years so stage five is preteen and teenage years so um this is where they they have a lot more contact and value relationships with their peers more so than other adults. Mm -hmm. So their peers are of ultimate importance. They begin to try on different value systems to see which fits best. I see this a lot with my 15-year-olds and how their parents are like, do I send them to residential care? They're not listening to me. I'm like, well, they're not really going to at this age. No. Um, no. In fact, it's important that they don't. That's right. I mean, we want it to be respectful, obviously. Everyone wants it to be respectful, but it isn't always. And I think part of our work as clinicians at at this time is respecting and fostering that autonomy because... um, the, the parents want us to work in their belief system and mm-hmm. it's just not going to work. So teens become more aware of and concerned with the larger society and, and start to begin to reason more abstractly about right and wrong. But a lot of that is based on what their friends are doing. Yeah, yes. So the development of morality is based on a child's experiences and environment as well as their cognitive, social, and emotional development. So if we think about this age and we think about what they are um gravitating towards it's going to be their friends it's going to be the environment but their brains are not fully developed they are lacking what we call the prefrontal cortex development which is what we need to be fully formed when we're thinking about culpability of crime because this is where people get reasoning judgment inhibition that to, to fully know the difference between right and wrong is not necessarily the issue, but it's the impulse control around it. Teenagers, to say, did this guy know he was doing something wrong? I think it's fair to say my 16-year-old nephew definitely knows the difference between right and wrong. Yeah. Whether his brain can stop him mm-hmm. in a certain situation, this is where the legal system has gone, okay. And this is why when people ask me, why did you go into forensic psychology? Because psychology plays such a big part part of the law and if we don't recognize that then we're missing this really big thing here yes does a 15 year old know right and wrong yes do they have the impulses to control the behavior not always yeah decision making and impulse control is a natural issue that they don't aren't don't have the capacity always sometimes they do sometimes they don't to make those kinds of decisions in instead of being impulsive Right. And so, or they're going to go along with what their friend's doing. Absolutely. That's the poor decision making and not having that sort of very, very well developed internal locus of control. Mm -hmm. So, and that's normal. Mm -hmm. So, I think that's, that's the piece that you're hitting home with is that that is normal. In other words, when I speak with parents, 
It's, yeah, no, your 14-year-old is going to be peer-driven, and if you would like them to follow your limits and expectations, you you have to understand that. And if there's any kind of, um, you know, uh, like thing you can give them as a reward that's peer driven, you're going to get better results because those are the, you know, those kinds of things. If anything that you can do to have them do things that mirror impulsivity, but aren't really impulsive because mm -hmm. that's going to play to them. And then anything you can do to talk to them about decision-making processes, but mm -hmm. know that it's not a hundred percent game that they don't, their frontal lobe, their executive functioning hasn't developed. Right. And so they aren't going to make the best decisions. So if you put them in a situation where they don't have supervision, you know, if they don't, you know, have autonomy as well, if it's you don't strike that balance, if yeah. you don't have that balance in your world, and if you don't let them have decision-making powers, you know, because some people might say, oh, well, you're 16, you have terrible decision-making, so I'm going to make all your decisions for you. But that doesn't build self-efficacy that when they're, 22 25 28 we want them to have self-efficacy as well and so you're teaching them you're parenting i have a client right now who um i sort of serve as that that balanced parent because her mother is incredibly rigid and this this kid has gotten herself into trouble in the past so mom uses that as a reason to not give her any autonomy and yep. i've i've tried to explain to mom listen, it's a balance. Like she has to have some autonomy or it's going to backfire on you. And because mom has got her stuff, she'll be like, well, it's, it's about our value system at home. And I go, great. Just know this is not going to get better then. I'm not going to try to change your value system, but if you're not willing to be flexible in that, I'm just letting you know she will get worse. Well, and moms and dads have a very difficult job as we know because uh, what we're describing is incredibly complicated. Mm -hmm. But if, if there is no, this is my perspective, but if there's no acknowledgement that the, her argument is the surface and underneath is just the fear based reality of she, it's possible hypothetically that she's just afraid of if she gives the child control, she'll screw it up again and That's all of exactly that. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. And so, but if there's no, it, it's really difficult to work with when someone doesn't acknowledge that, Yeah. that, you know, I actually, it's funny you say that too, because when I had a, the one family session I had, and then I said, I'll never do that to my client again, was she looked at me and she said, you, you make it sound like I make all of my decisions based on fear. And I think she was trying to trigger me to apologize. And I looked at her and I said, and <laughs> because like say more because yeah. you walked into that. I never, you know, no. that's the interpretation you got because you know that's well, what and that's you're the doing. black and whiteness of it right. because you didn't say that, but it's part of it. Yep. And so then she goes to like, oh, I'm making all my decisions out of fear. It's like, no, I didn't say that. I said that this is the the underlying piece of it mm -hmm. and the moral issue or what have you or the value issue actually is what you said um, is another part of it and da 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 because we don't do the black and white thing. Mm -hmm. Not Nothing is all or nothing. And mm -hmm. we've sort of strayed away from the capital punishment piece, but this is a really <laughs> important part of convicting and killing children. Of, of where a kid of is. Yeah, of where a kid is and their ability to make 
not just the decision, but to control the impulse around the decision. Right. You know, it's interesting we're talking about this. I just want to mention also that um, way back in the day, 1995, I worked for really briefly a nonprofit foundation in San Diego called the Tariq Kamisa Foundation. And I worked um, for Tariq's father when he was just starting this. Uh, It's still there and it's been going ever since he was starting this foundation. And I worked, I started out by working in his, you know, off home office and then moved into another space and then moved into a bigger space. And by that time I was kind of off to other things in my life, but it, it had a profound effect on me because Azim was his name, uh, the father, and Tariq was uh, killed by a 14-year-old gang member named Tony Hicks. What I remember of the story, and I for- forgive me, there's a whole website and everything for, for anyone to look it up, and a foundation if you're wanting to get involved in San Diego. But uh, as I remember, Tariq was a pizza delivery guy. He was a kid. He was um, a kid. And he was d- delivering a, a pizza and then you know, I won't go into the whole story, but was ended up being shot by Tony Hicks, who was a gang member. And Azim started a foundation and ended up having a relationship with Tony Hicks, who's the the kid who killed Tariq. Um, Plez Felix is the grandfather of the perpetrator, Tony. And they ended up forming a, a friendship because they were in a similar situation where they both lost their boys because uh, Tony was convicted and sent to prison for 25 years, not killed, not mm-hmm. sentenced to not death, no death penalty. This is the reason why I bring it up. And then flash forward to 25 years later. Now um, my knowledge is that Tony has been released from prison and there's this foundation on their web. Like Tony has a blog on the foundation's website. It was all about healing and kindness and Azim wanting a relationship with the grandfather, but also with Tony. Mm-hmm. And, and this was his way of, healing his own grief Mm -hmm. was to make something out of this Mm -hmm. because um, there wasn't any for him, for Azim, there wasn't any other way to go forward. Mm -hmm. And I, and I mention it because not because I'm stating we should be one way or the other, but because this kind of situation can't happen when we're black and white about kids getting the death penalty or about anybody getting the death penalty, really. Especially with kids. Yeah. Like this kind of situation where these two families you know, um, came together yeah. and made peace. And it's just really this amazing microcosm for a lot of things in our world. Right. But it's certainly a microcosm for... It's pretty remarkable. Like Tony as a 14-year-old gang member who was given a, a, a directive or a job or what have you most likely to kill as a part of his gang culture. I'm, get, I'm imagining, I don't know all the details of the story in this moment, Um and then to be able to have that tragedy come like grace and forgiveness. And um, it's, it's, it's remarkable. They have school programs now where they yeah. help kids and it's, it's pretty great. Anyway, I worked for them a million years ago for like six months. That's and, awesome. And um, when it was first starting and I, I just want to mention that with regards to children, yeah. because that's definitely a situation where Tony could have gotten for the sh- death penalty for sure. So it was an execution. So I just wanted to throw in these two last pieces of information around children, which is the Supreme Court ruled in 2005 that the death penalty is unconstitutionally cruel for juvenile killers in a five five to four decision. The justices found that 
the Constitution forbids executing anyone for a crime committed before the age of 18. So Chief Justice William H. Rehnquist and Justices Antonia Scalia and Clarence Thomas, shocker, voted to uphold the executions. They were joined by, shocker, Sandra Day O'Connor. But Ginsburg voted, um, not a shock, mm-hmm. uh, Ginsburg... Go Ruth voted against um, clearly finding this to be unacceptable and shameful. So this was a very, very, this is where I think um, why Republicans and Democrats get, a, it's, it's where we can literally say this is a straight ticket thing. Uh, many Republicans are, are for it mm-hmm. and many Democrats will go absolutely not. Yeah, they all voted partisanly, right? That's right. I mean, they all voted, nothing was a shock about That's that right. vote. <laughs> right. So, um, this is probably a good place to take a break. Okay, great. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. We're going to talk um, some more about capital punishment. Please join us. Thank you. While we take a break, go follow us on Instagram at Terror Talk Podcast, Twitter at Talk Terror, or on our Facebook page, Halloween All Year Long. If you prefer email, it's terrortalkpodcast at gmail.com. So reach out. If you like us, you can help us by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes or check out our Patreon page. We upload new episodes every Wednesday and Friday. Keep coming back, but first stick around for more of our show. Hi, everyone. We're back from the break talking about capital punishment. I believe you were going to get into some statistics, I believe. Right. So in the United States, like I was mentioning at the beginning of the episode, the death penalty is legal in 30 states and a total of 20 states, plus Washington, D.C., have abolished the death penalty. In California, we have 740 people currently on death row. 13 people have been executed since 1976, and our last execution was in 2006. But as of March of 2019... Further executions have been halted um, by an official moratorium ordered by Governor Gavin Newsom. So Mm. although we have 740 people on death row, no one else is going to be executed until further notice. So it's legal here, but he when he was elected, he put uh, put it on a moratorium. So Texas was actually the first jurisdiction in the world to carry out an execution by lethal injection in 1964. And from 1976 to September 25th, 2019, Texas has executed 565 offenders, more than a third of the nation's total. Sorry, Texas. This does not shock me. This is why Texas gets a lot of heat for the death penalty. 565 people um, from 1976 to 2019. That is an enormous amount So there's several reasons why Texas has the highest number of executions, such as the required strictness of applicable judges. Um, So they they require that um, people who are like minded in that sense. And then additionally, Texas relies upon court appointed lawyers for indigent defendants who likely do not have experiences in capital defenses or appeals. So you have a court appointed lawyer going up against a strict appellate judge. Um, you're screwed if you are that individual. Mm -hmm. It's going against you. Everything's going against you. Democrats in Colorado introduced a bill in March 2019 that would abolish capital punishment, making Colorado the 21st state to abolish the death penalty. So looks like we're that that must mean sorry so for, by 2020 depending on how you interpret California you could look at it as um 
you could look at it as 29 still have the the legal uh, versus 30. Gotcha. And then um, bl- uh, blacks make up 12% of the U.S. population, but 48% of those on death row. Mm-hmm. And 55% of those on death row are people of color. So yeah, speaks there's for itself. a disparity there. Yeah. yeah. So those are some of the stats around that. Any any thoughts or reactions or surprises or? Well, I you know it's not something that I have concentrated on, and so it, it it's it comes as news to me. I don't know that I'm surprised by any of that. Um, I mean, we were talking before the break about things being partisan, but it's but it's in other words, in many ways that's in line. I I've always known that there is a trend towards getting abolishing the. Uh, death penalty but i also know that we're not there yet no well and and things that i've uh, i've been recently doing a lot of research about um incarcerated females and with regards to mental health and the clinical considerations that we have it might be something that we do a future episode on because i'm finding it very very interesting and the reason why i bring that up is one of the pieces that's happened over the last couple of decades is that prisons, both male and female, um, but I was also doing some research about a male, male prisons and incarceration, is that they're overcrowded. There's many reasons for that that I won't go into right this minute. Maybe, like I said, we could do that in an episode. Um, but they're, one of the issues is that they're overcrowded, and then there's less but money, and then there's less programs, and then there's less concentration on... Um, programs and help for people so then there is more recidivism and then again we're back to overcrowding. it's like this vicious cycle no budgets and it's like a philosophical thing um if prisons are just warehousing people for a time period and not shifting anything or giving them anything you know we're not spending any money on helping Mm -hmm. then so so here's my thing is that if we uh, so this is probably one of the arguments that people make not only in the emotional part of the death penalty but then if we are if we really strive and we really want to if people really want to get rid of the death penalty they have to take into consideration the budgetary concerns of housing more prisoners because we have incarcerated more individuals in the last several decades than we ever have before. And we're also taking the death penalty off the table in many states. And so then there's the overcrowding piece, but we're not putting any money into helping. That's right. And, and that's where, um, and I've, it's so hard because I think a lot of, I, by the way, I, I I want to go back to this in a second, but I just sent you an article for our site um, on psychological evaluations and the role of that in the death penalty, and I'll get into that in a second. But um, I think that there's so much pushback. I've, I've watched documentaries and listened to podcasts and things on why removing the prison system a lot of the people who will say that's actually going to cost us more money because we've put so much into that. And then what we would have to do is then put more money into the schools because it starts in primary prevention. And are we going to take that kind of risk when we already have this system going? So there's a, we, mm-hmm. the, the, the rehabilitative, the, the, those of us, and I would consider myself 
clearly because I'm in mental health, more on the rehabilitative side. We try to present all these arguments and the government goes, no, that's actually going to be more expensive. But we really know that it's not, this is not about money. This is about ethics. This is about certain people believing that certain people are good and certain people are bad. Um, so it's, it's very political. Um, and this sort of ties into, we wanted to, at the beginning of the episode, we were talking about what is it um, that constitutes an evaluation for uh -huh. the death penalty. And so it, it is exactly what I thought, which is the mental health expert will play a part in evaluating um, any mitigating evidence that might lessen a sentence. So relevant mental okay. health information. So usually what my understanding is the evaluator will go in during the sentencing phase okay. and evaluate that. So I, I, I just sent you an article that we can maybe post around the time that this, if people want to read more about mm -hmm. what a forensic psychologist does in that role. These are not evaluations I do, so I don't know specifically, but um, it helps inform a defendant's sentence. Okay. So it plays a part in that. So yeah, um, mm -hmm. rehabilitation is really the way to go, but that would, we would have to do a lot of things to completely, um, yeah. change where we are now because we have more prisons than anybody in the world. Yeah. And it's, and the statistics you stated means that politically, culturally, we would need to have a mindset that, uh, it was, in, it is important to help and rehabilitate people who, largely who, people who are of a lower socioeconomic status in our culture they have to matter they, they have just, to matter they don't, first they don't matter as much yep. as white people with who are higher SES. i know they have to matter and the people voting and advocating and being elected need to know that they matter. That's right. And I, I really do think that's a big part of it. I think if we were seeing the majority of people on death row as whites mm -hmm. and they were the people getting, we were the people who were getting executed, this law would have changed a long time ago. Yeah. Agreed. And it, especially in Texas. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. And even, and even the white people, let's say, I'm, I'm wondering what the statistics are as I don't know, but mm -hmm. I'm just, so I'm just sort of making this up, but I'm going to guess that the, most of the white people that are in the same situation are of a lower socioeconomic status. And yep. so I'm, for we're, sure, we're still talking about, you know, we talked last week about parasite and class and cultural divides and the highs and the lows, you know, the polar opposites of the rich and the poor. And, and I'm guessing you know, yeah, the whites that are are facing this. Otherwise, they will have the money to pay for a better attorney. So, if we're looking at the state of Texas, do they get to say, "No, I want this private attorney who's going to step in because I can afford that," mm -hmm. where a young black man who, man who's been in a gang to survive to feed his family, he's going to have this court appointed uh, attorney who doesn't know as much with likely a a very conservative white judge who's like we're putting you to death it, yeah. the whole system is against them i mean they are losing from the second they walk into the courtroom so it's all botched <laughs> it's all botched but it's going to hell it's all going just to like hell. in parasite we can't win 500 and what did i say 65 executions that's that's ridiculous and and that doesn't even count the people who are just on death row right now. That's just the actual executions. Yeah. So we started out saying we weren't going to um, 
be on a soapbox about it. <laughs> it's hard not to. But we are now. Yeah. We have we we have we take back we take I take back the statement that we weren't going to make an argument for one side or the other. I think uh, to be completely transparent, I think it's hard to be in the industry we are in and and not be able to take a stance on how rehabilitation there are other ways around this where people can still get consequences and still get help or not if they're psychopaths. Right. Um but but again it's just this all or nothing thing, like what you were saying is what we need to get rid of. Yeah. yeah. And I understand how difficult it is to listen to our, some of our true crime psychology episodes. And even though we provide context and even though we talk about where the behavior came from, et cetera, et cetera, it's hard to look at somebody like Richard Ramirez and want not, not want him to be sentenced to, to die out of an emotional thought process. Well, and here's my thought about that. So we have the Ramirez Ramirez's we have the Dahmers we have the Mansons we have these guys if we had to do an all or nothing around capital punishment they are such a small percentage Mm -hmm. of the people who actually go in front of a court and get the death penalty very much so except that our culture even uh, even us you know we concentrate and about talking about these people and and having the and they're very famous and so i think as a culture we look at who is famous and who we know the names of and we then unfortunately and errantly extrapolate that to whole populations of criminals for sure and i think so this kind of moves into our next segment which is a lot of people's opinions around do we fix hate violence and malice with the same thing so are we matching what they did is it are we still in that place of eye for an eye or if we have to make this an all-or-nothing system where we get rid of capital punishment can we just have a different type of consequence like ramirez he pretty much lived in solitary you know he had to live behind plexiglass to me that's more hell than the death sentence yeah we talk about that in the episode about for him for him specifically psychologically yeah that was far more of a punishment and execution and are we as a society willing to pay taxes to have that be the punishment i mean i get that you're saying that it's not always about money and it isn't always about money it's about culture and class and what we value and then money comes up because it does cost money and so i personally politically am okay with paying for that in my taxes and having there be um uh, appropriate punishment and rehabilitation programs in prisons and all of mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. I, I happen, I would vote that direction. And I think if we were, and this is going to have to go full circle because this is going to take a long time before we very much kind of so. come back to the beginning, which is if we are spending more money in rehabilitation, education and primary prevention, we are not going to have as many people on death row. So we have to look at rehabilitation and, and primary prevention starting very young. So paying attention, primary prevention is everything. When we look at physical health, Mm -hmm. we look at getting things, go get your body screened, go get your eyes checked, go get your blood tests. You know, this is why we need healthcare. Um, Because if we can prevent it before it gets bad, we can save a lot of lives. We can stop a lot of illness. It's the same thing with mental health. If we can get into a place in society where we are doing primary prevention, we are recognizing bullying, we are recognizing abuse, we are recognizing these early signs, if people knew what was going on with Richard Ramirez, it never would have gone that far, mm-hmm. ever. Yeah. So there was a lot that could have been um, put into place for him, but because of so many of his environmental factors and SES and all that, they couldn't. So 
we also know that having a capital punishment sentence does not statistically reduce murder rates. It's not fixing anything. No, people not are still, cause and effect, right? Nope, people are still murdering. Yeah. And then what we've already talked about, which is what about the wrongfully accused? So what does that mean for people who are put on death row who have not committed the crime? So, uh, uh, crime. so of the 22,000 murders that occur each year in the U.S., about 1% result in death sentence, which, which 1% lar- uh, depends largely on the effectiveness of the attorney, mm-hmm. right? So if you have money which often depends on how much money the accused has, the U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg said people who are uh, are well represented at trial do not get the death penalty. And I think all the statistics show that. Mm. Um, the last piece that I wanted to bring up was about, and this is a little bit more gruesome, but what actually happens to somebody during legal execution. Okay. So a prisoner generally dies within seven minutes of receiving a lethal injection. Um, These drugs are incredibly painful when they go into the system. It's not like euthanasia where they just kind of fall asleep. These lethal injections um, are actually obtained from Europe where the death penalty is illegal. However, legal pressures and concerns from manufacturers in Europe have made traditional execution drugs unavailable. So the states have been trying experimental drug cocktails for lethal injections, and there have been a lot of problems with botched executions um, involving lethal injection and involving when they use the electric chair. So in an Arizona case, Joseph Rudolph Wood received two new drugs, I might be pronouncing these wrong, midazolam and hydromorphone, and it took him nearly two hours to die. And then sometimes the victim being electrocuted bursts into flames. In 1983, this is a really popular case, uh, the electrocution of John Evans in Alabama was described in a sworn testimony by his attorney at 8.30 p.m., the first jolt of 1,900 volts of electricity passed through Mr. Evans' body. It lasted 30 seconds. Sparks and flames erupted from the electrode tied to Mr. Evans' left leg. His body slammed against the straps, holding him in the electric chair, and his first, his fist clenched permanently. This was just the first. It took him, he was still alive after like these two incre- incredible volt, uh, uh, charges against him, jolts against him. And so it took him much longer than it should have, and he was cognizant. I mean, he was conscious through some of this. So we also have to look at the cruel and unusual punishment that can happen in these executions. Yeah, I've read a lot of stories where they mess it up, mm-hmm. you know, and it's often dramatized in films and yep. things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I when we were ta- as we've been talking about this, and then prior to um, looking at things for this episode, I'm I'm really aware because we talk about a lot of films. I'm aware of a lot of films that I like that have the content context of yeah. capital punishment in them. What's um, one of your favorites? Uh, I liked the Green Mile. That's a great one. Yeah, that was your Stephen King. That's your Stephen King. <laughs> I have to throw that one out there, don't don't I? I, I mean, loved um Dead Man Walking. Dead Man Walking was very good. I I sh- I would say um, you know, there's a lot of them. Uh, I would say there. W- so I did want to mention there's a movie, and I think I got some Oscar buzz, but there was a movie that came out last year that I originally saw at Sundance and just really fell in love with. In fact, if I can find them, I think I might have, I may or may not have video of the filmmaker and the star of the movie talking after the movie, but it was a movie called Clemency. 
Oh, I think I've heard of that. Yeah, with Alfre Woodard. Um, yes. Yeah, I never saw it. No, it's uh, it's 2019. You know, it they it did get purchased and put out uh, not that long ago. But then, I mean, it got a little bit of Oscar buzz. I certainly got a screener and stuff. I was just really glad mm-hmm. to know. Um, she is the warden. She plays the warden right. of a prison, and she's preparing to execute another. In this movie, she's preparing to execute another inmate, as she does, and she confronts the psychological demons of her job and ultimately connects her to the person she's about to execute. And um, it's one of those character-driven... In other words, if you like Alfre Woodard, this is... this is uh, I like her It's her lot. movie. Like, like she's she's amazing in it. An, an emotional, and it's slow and hard and painful but there is there's a lot of social commentary on capital punishment in it it's a i would i would recommend anybody who wants to further kind of look at anything we've mentioned or any of the articles or books that kathy has mentioned um i would throw this movie out there because it's um I think it taps into the emotional and psychological piece of this because it's from a warden's perspective. Right. Who's a hard ass. Right. But then has this, and there's a personal story to it as well. Eh, I don't know. It's really good. Okay. <laughs> That's what I would say. I like her a lot. So yeah, she's great. So is there any, any way you want to wrap this up? Any last thoughts on? No, it's a really heavy topic, but I think, um, um, unfortunately, we have more states in this country who uphold it versus oppose it. And I think that's kind of shocking. Yeah. I, I, I personally can't say that I'm shocked, but, but I, yeah, like I said before, we started out wanting to be um, evenly keeled on this, but we should know better. I mean, even when we were preparing this episode, we both said, yeah, we're, we're just, we're going to just present the information and not be biased one way or the other. Well, we don't- and then about halfway through, I'm like, yeah, that never happens. I don't know why we make that decision and say that thing, but you know, I mean, anybody who has a talk show for le- lack of a better word, you know, these are the contemporary talk shows podcasts mm-hmm. are, um, has an opinion and we should, we're just going to, we're just going to embrace that from now on. And I, I don't think it's that shocking being that we're in, uh, no, it just makes me laugh every time we try to like, think we're going to present a case like a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> we try. So we're going to be right back. We have one more segment to the show. We're going to do our, what the hell segment and, uh, we'll be right back. Hey there, we're back. I just hit my face with my, with my, uh, whatever these are, my cans. <laughs> Your headphones? <laughs> yeah, that's what they used to call them like a million years ago in radio. Cans. The cans. Anyway. I think you hit your own can. All right then. You'd like that. So it's the what the hell segment and I'm going to go first. Yeah, do it. So what I decided to do this week was... I wanted to find some home invasion stories because of last week's What the Hell with the home invasion. Oh, the, the, the nude. The woman who had a sandwich, the nude woman who had yeah. a sandwich and went to bed in some strange man's house. Um, I'd, I got intrigued by home invasion type things because I thought, oh, maybe there's some funny stuff. So what I did was I found three short ones that I'm going to say. So Excellent. the first one is uh, very short. 
The quote is, someone wandered into my house at like two in the morning and said he was quote unquote, just looking, told me it wasn't very neighborly when I told him to leave or I would shoot. (laughs) Oh my God. Okay. So someone walks into your house and you have a gun because you're allowed to have a gun Okay, and you're allowed to protect your house and you say to them, if you don't leave, I'm going to shoot you. And they say, well, that's not very neighborly. Two in the morning. Okay. The next one is, uh, these are all obviously self-reported. These are people talking about things. So the second one is, I worked a third shift at the time. My kids told me I had started snoring. I didn't believe them and decided to record myself sleeping while they were in school. Because he's sleeping during the day. Turned the recorder on and, and said, this is to see if I snore to the recorder. Went to sleep. First, you could hear me breathing And then you could hear me go into a deep sleep and after a while snoring. So my kids are right. Then clear as day, you hear two voices talking to each other over me. I was home alone. They said, they said, can she? And the other one said, I don't think she can. And that's creepy. The woman says I had the tape for years and I feel like they were just talking about them, talking about like whether they, I could hear them or not. Like, yeah, can she? That's creepy. Or I don't think she can. Really creepy. Like, what happened after that? I want more right. of that story. All right. right. So then the third one, real quick, is um, I was house sitting for my friend and her dogs were acting crazy, barking at nothing, whimpering, etc. Eventually, I heard a weird noise upstairs. I counted the dogs. They were all with me. You know, that person you yell at for looking around the house instead of just calling the police. That was me. The knife drawer was baby proofed and I'm such an idiot. So I couldn't get into it. So I grabbed a meat fork. She messaged a group chat that if they didn't get updates from me every five minutes, they should call the cops. Oh, my God. So she goes looking around, right? She tried to bring one of the dogs with her, but they weren't having any of it. <laughs> Even the dogs were smart enough not to go up the. Eventually, I found the source of the noise, and I was relieved to see that it was just the sink. She turned it off and texted the group chat. Never mind, it was just the sink. And one of my re- friends replied, but who turned it on? Oh. And immediately, the friggin' lever pulls forward, and water started coming out. I rubber banded it, so it was turning itself on. I rubber banded it closed and I hightailed it out of there. Sat there with the meat fork in my hand watching movies all night. The <laughs> no meat way. fork. Meat fork. That's funny. That's <laughs> creep. Some of those are creepy. I know. Though. I love those. Okay. That's me. <laughs> okay. This, this guy's a complete idiot. Cool. So when a perpetrator actually gets away with a crime, he must have an overwhelming sense of relief and the urge for a bit of celebration. After all, he's just pulled off an illegal act and left no evidence behind that could tie him to the act. Imagine the relief he must feel upon getting away with murder. Mm. And now imagine how dumb he'd need to be <laughs> after having gotten away clean with a murder Oh no! to have the crime scene permanently tattooed to his chest. That's what happened with Anthony Garcia, a Los Angeles gang member who committed a murder during a liquor store robbery and got away with it for four years <laughs> until he was picked up for driving on a suspended license mm. and the police noticed his unique tattoos when taking his mugshot. 
It did not take them long to connect the dots considering the crime scene was recreated in pretty exhausting detail. On the tattoo. Like, isn't that crazy though? Like who's insane. I'm going to have that put on my chest. How like grandiose. Like this is what I did. I'm going to brand it on me. But that's my accomplishment. That's my accomplishment. Okay, cool. Wow. Well, this episode is our accomplishment yes, it <laughs> for is. the day. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, please tune back in on Friday for our Shrink Chat show. We very much appreciate you listening. This is Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us. Subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes. Plus, you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow.